0: All right, so I know that I'm walking through this book very slowly. I want you to be patient with me. One of the reasons why I'm doing it is because it is an extremely practical book, an excellent book for us to learn what it looks like to be a Christian and live in this world and how we're supposed to live in what should be our focus and what should be our attention. So as we're making our way through this book, y'all be patient with me. I might speed up as time goes along, especially when I get into these hard passages coming up at the end of chapter 3 where we can deal with the whole baptism and uh, yeah, there's some real good stuff here coming up. But before that, or we are going to slow down and go through these passages that talk about uh, application and practical Ramifications of being a Christian, because it's important for us to understand it. You know, it's very interesting to me, and and I was just thinking about this. In in the epistles, the letters to the churches from Paul and Peter and John, there aren't a lot of passages that tell you how to present the gospel. Uh, Do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, there's not a uh, a Romans road. Hey, say this first, then say that. There's not a lot of that in most of the epistles. It's interesting to me that all of the epistles, most of the epistles at least, focus on our lives. They focus on our behaviors and how we live and how we interact with each other. I'm not saying that we shouldn't share the gospel with people. Listen to me closely. Yes, we should be sharing the gospel with each other. But it does appear that in the epistles the emphasis is more on how we live amongst each other and how that's supposed to be a light to the world. It's very interesting, isn't it? Peter, nowhere in here, says, hey, look, go spend 15 hours a week knocking on doors and sharing the gospel. He talks about how you should live with each other because the the facts are that a believer's life should reflect the gospel in the way we talk and the way we live. And it should be so distinct that the people we work around or live around or live with, they should look at us and go, there's something different about you compared to the world. And that's what we see here. So... Here's the question. I asked it last week, and we'll get into the part two today. Do you love your life? Do you love your life? When we are mistreated, do we love our life? Or when things are going rough in our life or difficult in our life, do we love our life? That's a good question, isn't it? I had some interaction with a pastor in Myanmar uh, this week, Mu uh, Lot is a pastor on the border between China and Myanmar, which used to be Burma. Uh, I was humbled by his life because he deals and ministers with displaced people, uh, the Kachin tribe. Thousands and thousands of these people live in makeshift huts and tents. Uh, They travel, they move around. They have hometowns, but they can't be there because if they're there, they'll get caught up in a civil war where people are fighting all the time. And so you have these thousands of people moving around the countryside, living in tents and huts, and it's just really sad. And I thought to myself, you know, how does this guy love his life (laughs) How can he love his life? He ministers to people that are constantly hurting and struggling. Very much like what Peter might have been dealing with with these people. They're strangers and aliens and he's dealing with people that are on the run and thinking, hey, the government could come and kill me at any time or take me and throw me in jail. Very much like this, this pastor friend of mine, Mulat, ministers to these families Life is hard for these people. You know how much this guy makes? He, he probably makes about $60 a month in salary. A month. That's not a day. A month. He lives on practically nothing. And yet, there's pictures and numerous pictures I've seen of him where he's smiling and talking to people and encouraging them. How can he have this kind of attitude and live in these kind of conditions? Can you imagine having a life like this? How many of you like to go camping? I like to go camping. But I also like to go home after camping, right? I don't like to... I don't know about you guys, but I like my bed. And I like a warm shower and running water. Everybody like that? Well, these people live in tent-like conditions, camping all the time. And they have communal areas where they all take showers... And the water is cold. It's not heated. There is no electricity, and they live like this for years. Years. Man, we have so much here, don't we? And yet we have such a hard time having, loving our life, (laughs) despite the circumstances we live in here. Is that not true? I think it's because maybe we think loving our life is more like the way the world thinks of loving their life instead of the way the Bible says we should love our life. Today we're going to see loving life as possible even in these impossible circumstances. No, it might not be easy. No, it doesn't mean we will be loved by everyone. No, it doesn't mean that our lives will be even long necessarily. We might not have a long life, but we can still love life. No, it does not mean we will be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. But believers should desire to love life and see good days. We're going to see that today. Today we will learn how we can find joy in our life despite difficulties. We started last week with uh, verse 8, and we saw that believers' interaction with other believers is what a uh, Christ-exalting life is. Reflects. In other words, if our character shows what verse 8 demonstrates, then we show off Christ, we show the gospel as active in our lives, and we look different. We saw that we, ha- we should have unity of mind, thus unity of purpose. Not necessarily that we're always going to agree on everything, because we don't always agree on things. And we are very, very different people, right? But we have unity of purpose. We want Christ exalted. We also must have and should have and should demonstrate sympathy for one another. Thus, we should care deeply for others' needs and their sorrows and their joys. We should be thinking of others more than ourselves. We also should have brotherly love towards one another. And we should also be tender-hearted towards one another. That is, we show affection and sensitivity to other people. So crucial. Believers, that's what we do. We are sensitive to other people and their circumstances. That means you have to think of somebody other than yourself, right? You have to be thinking of other people. I'm convinced that most marriage problems are because we're not sensitive with each other. We don't think of the other person. We don't put ourselves in other people's shoes It's not always natural for us to do this. But this is what the Bible calls us believers to be and do. So how do we do this? Well, I think it's that last little uh, command or the idea that we should do. The last characteristic. We should be humble. Uh, This is the characteristic we all must strive to reflect continuously. Humility. We must consider, like I said, others as more important than ourselves. Arguably, I would say that humility is the primary attitude of a believer. It's the one that every believer must seek to have and demonstrate. We must be humble people. Now, some of you might say, well, what about love? Isn't love the command that we're supposed to obey? Love, the first and greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself? Well, I would argue that humility us to come before love happens why well because after all you can't obey a command unless you what are humble to the one who gave you the command right you must be not about yourself you must not be exalting yourself in order for you to love somebody else it starts with your heart and your heart must say somebody else is more important than me correct and that's humility now, my initial interpretation of 3 8 and 3 9 was is that verse 8 is talking about believers and how we interact with one another as believers. And then verse 9, it says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this is what you were called for, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, when I when I read through this and I've read the, the commentaries. It was divided. Is Peter focused in verse 8 on believers' interaction? And then in verse 9, believers interacting with unbelievers. Did you hear me? Which one is it? Is he talking about believers' interaction with believers in verse 8? And then in verse 9, it's believers' interaction with unbelievers. Or, or is it still believers? I think the answer is yes. I've changed my mind this week. You say, why did you change your mind? Well, because the more I study it, there's not a lot in the verses that tell us where the change of focus is. It doesn't really tell us. But I have to confess to you that, read verse 9 again, the first half again. Look at it for a second. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now, when you hear evil for evil or reviling for reviling or insult for insult, as some of your... Translation say, I think to myself, but believers don't insult each other, do they? We're not evil towards one another, are we? It's it's this thought process in my mind that thinks we should be better than that. Anybody think that? And after all, and back in... 1 Peter chapter 2, the last time revile for revile was mentioned, it was against Jesus, the world coming against Jesus, reviling him, but he did not what? Return revile. They insulted him, but he did not insult them. That's the world treating Jesus evil. So when you get over to 3, 8, and 9, you think, well, obviously this is talking about the world, right? I'm not saying that you should translate and understand a passage based on your experience, but I will tell you this. I was reminded this week again just how much people are not kind to each other, even Christians. So, I'm not saying that I'm 100% sure. And I do think that most likely this is believers' interaction with the world. But I will tell you, beloved, when we don't look like verse 8, verse 9 is soon to follow. Do you understand? When you're not being sensitive, when you're not being kind, when you're not caring about other people, when you're not demonstrating brotherly love, guess what the next thing you're probably going to do? You're going to insult people. And you're going to be reviling them. So how do we keep the church from falling apart and looking just like the world? Well, we better obey verse 9 when we're dealing with one another, too. Do you understand? If your house doesn't obey verse 9, guess what? Your house will look like the world's house. Do you understand? Very crucial. So what do we see? The believer's interaction with the world in verse 9. But it applies to our interaction with sinning believers. All of us do it. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So he gives three responsibilities here to focus on how we must relate to the outside world and to sinning believers. Don't give back evil. Don't give back evil. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't. Return what you've received. Evil, this includes both thoughts, words, actions, with an emphasis here on actions. But now let's just be real honest. Uh, Check your heart for a second. Have you ever had somebody, a a, a Christian, treat you bad? Yes, right. Did you maybe say, well, I'm going to be better than this, and I'm not going to return evil for evil? And in your heart, you thought to yourself, boy, would I like to do this and this and this and this in your mind. You have that list going on in your heart. Anybody have those? I thank you for your honesty. Do you understand that if it was there in your heart, you've what? You've already sinned. Do you understand? What's the problem? The problem is this. The old man's still prevalent in our lives, isn't it? He has to tell Christians not to return evil for evil because what? The flesh. We still have these bodies of death, and we're still prone to what? Return evil for evil. How many of you were taught, and let's be honest, is he how many that if somebody punches you when you're a kid, that you need to punch them back harder. Please raise your hand. Oh my, wait, wait, stop. Some of you in the front. Everybody keep your hands up for a second. Raise your hand. Okay, now look. People in the front, turn around and look. That's almost all the whole congregation. Most of us were taught to punch back harder. Right? We're in trouble, right? And all those kids that were raising their hands, you better go talk to your parents because I don't think they believe that. I'm fairly sure they wouldn't say that. <laughs> we know the world is lost, correct? And the world promotes return evil. If somebody said something unkind to you, <laughs> say something unkind back to them. Give them evil. If they stab you in the back, stab them in the back. Do whatever it takes to get revenge, Right? But the believer isn't supposed to be like this. And if we don't return evil for evil, what do you think the people are going to do when they see us give them a blessing instead of returning evil? They're going to say, what's wrong with you? Who are you? Please tell me why I can mistreat you and you can treat me kind in return. We're going to see that in the next verses. Coming up in a little bit, you'll be ready to give a defense of the hope that lies within you. It's good stuff. He also says, don't give back insult for insult. Oh, boy, here we go. This is the major key. There is no room for clapback. Any of y'all in the room that understands what that means? The point behind it is what? The fact of the matter is this. We often, we often throw back insults to those that insult us. How many of you have been taught this? Listen to me, listen to me closely, listen clear. I didn't know that term clap back until about two or three weeks ago. Somebody taught me what that word meant. And they showed me some examples of it and I was like, ooh, are that's not good. But then I thought about myself and thought about my upbringing and the fact of the matter is is that we didn't have the term clap back but we did the same thing. Growing up it was this with all my cousins, with all my family and the idea was this. If they insulted me and said something, guess what I was going to do? I was going to talk about their mother or I was going to talk about their brother or I was going to talk about how they were no good. That was what I did. That's who I was. That's who the world is. I don't care what culture you are. Guess what? That's what we do. Returning insult for insult is what? Normal. It's who we are. We talk about people. Sometimes we don't talk about them to their face. We talk about them behind their backs. They insult us and we then go and Say, hmm, yeah, that guy's a real jerk. And list out all these things to other people. Do you understand that that's the same thing? It's the same heart, correct? Believers were not supposed to be this way. I see this all too often, even in arguments or debates over theological things. (laughs) Doctrine. We can have a debate about the five points of Calvinism. And in the process, we can use insults in order to win the argument. Using straw man arguments, that is, building, saying this is who you are, and setting it up easy so that you can smack it down. Characterizing your opponent as something that's easy to beat. All of this can be insult for insult. Do you understand if you ha- in order for you to win an argument you have to make somebody else feel small then guess what you're doing you're falling into this trap of insult for insult we can't be that the world tells us the way you win over an opponent is you humble them you make them look insignificant and small But the Bible says just the opposite. If somebody tries to make you look small and they insult you, what's the response? Humility. You take it. You say, you know what? I deserve much worse than that. The reality is is that we as believers understand how to live like this because we know our Savior did it for us. Do you understand? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 again. You must see this. This is gospel thinking. This is applying the gospel to your mind. 2.21, for this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you as an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled. Same word. He did not revile in return. When he suffered. He did not threaten. He did not give an insult. He did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now. What happened when he was reviled? He did not return revile. Because if he would have reviled in return, what would have happened? We'd all be going to hell right now. Understand, there would be no perfect Savior, no perfect sacrifice. We would be in trouble. If he would have insulted in return, we'd all be dead. But instead, he gave a blessing to us. Even though it was our sin, it was our sin, he loved us and even loved the people that were killing him and had rejected him so that we could be saved. Instead of insulting, Jesus gave a blessing. He himself bore our sin on his body, in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So, what did he give? He gave a blessing. On the contrary, he gave back a blessing. Give back words of encouragement, not words of insult. Build people up, not tear people down. If you can't think of anything to say, what should you do? Don't talk. Pray. Did you hear me? Take note of that. Don't talk. Pray. Talk to God. A gospel-centered mind does not seek to shame their opponent. A gospel-centered mind seeks to save their opponent. Oh, so important. So we come to the foundation of our character found in the second half of verse 9. It states, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For you work." Called for that very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. God ordained your effectual call that you would be His child so that for the purpose of receiving or inheriting a blessing. The purpose believers should reflect the previous characteristic of not returning revile for revile or insult for insult or evil for evil is because we have been redeemed, called... For the purpose of receiving a blessing. We have this. And therefore we shouldn't respond incorrectly. Jesus was reviled for us. So that we could receive a blessing. This was his calling in each of our lives. If you're a born again believer. You have inherited a blessing. Even though you reviled God for many many years of your life. It's now our calling. To receive persecution. Persecution. And give blessing, not insult. Again, you must think like Christ. When we are insulted, beloved, what is that? Opportunity. Opportunity. We don't think that way, do we? Be honest. When somebody says something rude to you, what do you think? Who do you think you are? Or, why are you talking to me like this? You're not being very kind. You begin to defend yourself, right? How many of you defend yourself? You think, I've got to make that other person feel my pain. Or, I'm going to give it to them so that they feel the pain in a different way. But beloved, that is not looking at the insult properly. We're supposed to look at the insult as an opportunity to reflect the glory of Christ back to them. Not in returning revile for revile or insult for insult. In trusting our heart just like Jesus did to the Father. And then us showing, giving a blessing instead of a curse. How well do we do that? Anybody in here? You do it really well. I do it well all the time. No, none of us, right? Aren't we struggling? Okay, you know why it's that way? Because the gospel is too small in our minds. We're not meditating on the gospel enough. We're not applying the gospel to our heart and our conversations enough. We're not thinking on Christ enough. Yes, the more we meditate on Christ, the more we will look like Christ. Oh, we need him, don't we? Oh, I need him. How about you? Our sin is what held him there. So we must respond like he responded for us. We have a higher purpose in this life than what the world has for our purpose. Fourth, the purpose of life for the believer. Look at verse 10. He quotes from Psalm 34. He states... For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what is the purpose of a Christian? What is the purpose of a believer? Well, our purpose is to honor and exalt Christ, to love life and see good days. That's what that phrase is talking about, desires to love life. The thought is, what one commentator state, the thought is wanting a life here on earth that is worthwhile, that one can love their life with full intelligence and purpose. How many of you love your life that way? That you have a purpose in life and you love what you're about and who you are for. Well, that's the point he's getting at here. Let me develop it a little bit and explain a little better. When we say, quote, I love my life, this shouldn't mean what the world means when it says I love my life. We mean we are God's children and he has a purpose for our life. We exist to exalt and glorify Him. Our life is about showing off Christ to the world. We get to exalt God in a lost world. We see that as a privilege and an opportunity, right? I get to show off Christ to the world. That's loving our life. I love who I am in Christ and I get to show off Christ to the world. We are individuals dominated by an ongoing desire or purpose to love life. This is more about the quality of life than the length of our life. In other words, this doesn't mean we are passionately committed to the longest life c- possible. Okay, do you understand that everybody in the room, you're all going to die unless the rapture happens, which that would be a lot better. We're all going to die. And we can all want a long life. But do you understand ultimately you are not in control of how long you're going to live? You must understand that as much as you desire a long life and everything be great and not have struggles, that might not happen. If your focus is on those things, then you're going to hate your life. You know why? Because you're going to die. Everybody's going to die. And you can't take any of what you have with you. Do you understand? None of it. So if your whole life, I love my life because I have a car and, you know, all these things and people, even kids and having all that. If that's what you're loving your life is about, you're in trouble. Because you're going to be miserable. Because there's going to be disaster after disaster because we live in a cursed world, right? Right? But if you love your life because it's an opportunity to show off the glory of Christ, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, you're going to be okay. It means we are passionately committed to the most God-glorifying life possible. That's what he means by desire to love life and see good days. Hebert states, a person who desires to love life is a person who has recognized and deliberately accepted the realization that life is not a playground of indulgences, but rather an arena of redemption. I'll say it again, listen. Has recognized and deliberately accepted the realization that life is not a playground of indulgences, but rather an arena of redemption. Are we about indulging our flesh? No. It's not about this. It's about redemption. It's about seeing people come to Christ. It's about exalting Jesus. That's what our lives are about. And see good days. This is parallel to desire to love life. We desire to see good days. What's a good day? If I were to ask you, what's a good day for you? A good day is my kids all obeyed me. A good day is me and my wife got along the whole day, no problems. A good day is all the sheep called me at the same time and gave me encouraging words. Pastor Mike, you are a good pastor. A good day is being encouraged by one another. Do you understand that based on the context, a good day might not include any of that? The context states, my son or my daughter has a bad day and they sin, but I get to share the gospel with them 14 times. That's a good day. Me and my wife have a disagreement, and I'm rude to my wife. Bad sin, I repent, and I turn to Christ, and I go get right with her, and I and I confess my sin to her, and I ask her to forgive me, and I exalt Jesus Christ, that's a good day. Why? No, I, it's not good that I sinned. But it's good that I responded properly to my sin. And that I exalted Christ, not myself. You want to hear a bad day? Here's a bad day. I blow it with my wife. And then I go to my wife and I make excuses for my sin. And I justify myself to her all day. That's a bad day. Because I did not exalt Christ. Does everybody understand this? A good day is a day that Jesus is exalted, not ourselves. That's a good day. All believers need this, right? A good day is one where we make much of God more than much of ourselves. Not many of us could imagine that is a good day or we love life if we faced persecution that these people faced. But they can love life. And see good days despite their persecution. Because their goal is not to be treated well. Their goal is to exalt Christ no matter what happens to them. So important. Do you all get this? So how well do we do at it? I don't know about you, but I'm convicted by passages like this. I'm reminded just how much I need Jesus. But if if our purpose in life is to exalt Christ then anything that happens to us is seen as an opportunity to exalt Jesus. After laying out the purpose of life, what Peter does is he's quoting from Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 is basically called an ancient recipe for a happy life, is what it's called, an ancient recipe for a happy life. He then Quotes from it again and and, and basically unveils or explains what our responsibility looks like. And he develops it some more. Look, he states first. He says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. How do we love life and see good days? We keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. What we say reveals whether we love life and see good days, whether we have the right purpose in mind in our life. I'm often puzzled. Is this one that puzzles you? If you're a parent, you're going to get it even more. It's coming your way. I'm puzzled by some of the debates that come up on social media. They drive me mad. Like, is it all right to use foul language in certain contexts? Whatever you do, don't go on the Reformed Pub Facebook page. Oh my! It's one debate after a next. It's one right after the next, after the next, over what can I do and get away with and not sin. That's I mean that's the debate. Can I cuss? Can I use foul language? Can I do this in certain contexts when it's not and it's not be not be sin? Does this kind of stuff drive you mad too? Drives me crazy. Look, I know there are all kinds of arguments one can make to justify using unwholesome words. But what puzzles me is why seek to see what you can get away with? Why are we seeking to see how close we can get to sinning without sinning? Does that make any sense to me? Why are we doing this? Why do we debate these things? Isn't there something else we can talk about more edifying than how close can I get to doing something and not sin? How does that fit with this passage? How does this work? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. God never tells us to try and get as close as we can to evil without falling into it. Does he ever tell us to do that? Hey, what I want you to do is you can use this word, but not that word. And you can use that word even in the right context. If you quote them, it's okay. Why? Nowadays, it's... It, not no no offense, but nowadays we've just abbreviated words. We've abbreviated words. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Rolling on the floor. Rolling on the floor. I think that's what that is. R O F. I think. I think. I hope. I might be wrong. Unfortunately, there's a whole bunch of those. I think I picked a tame one. LOL would have probably been easier, right? Laughing out loud, easy. But then what we do is we do it with all kinds of foul language. So we call people names and say things, but because it's an initial, it's okay. It's no big deal. How is that keeping your tongue from evil? Just me. Am I a legalist? No, guys, I'm just trying to... Why? Why not run to the other way? We know God. It doesn't say keep your tongue as close as you can to lying without actually lying. Again, what do we do? We argue over what white lies are and if it's okay to have white lies. Right? I mean, it never fails. I get arguments like this. Well, what about if you are Cory Ten Boom and somebody was at your door and... The Nazis came. Should you lie or not? Well, first of all, I'm not her. (laughs) I'm not in that circumstance. Why am I sitting here trying to figure out a hypothetical? I don't live at that time. Does this make any sense at all? Beloved, we should seek to do what honors God because we're saved. Again, the enemy doesn't come in and and start with four-letter words with no restraint. He doesn't start that way. He's subtle. He seeks to move in closer and closer and try to slide us into evil. That's what he does. That's why he says things like, Did God really say? What is that question? What is that? That's... Are you sure? Isn't that the same question we're asking when we say, is it okay if I have four beers but not five beers? I'm not saying alcohol is sin, but I am saying what? Why are we trying to get as close as we can without falling into sin? Shouldn't we as Christians seek to be as far away from sin as possible? Shouldn't we? Believers who desire to love life and see good days seek to flee from anything that is even close to sin and pursue righteousness. Because Christ died for us so that we could live to righteousness. As soon as I say this, I'm probably being accused of legalism by somebody. But let's clarify real quickly what legalism is. It's establishing a moral standard that you can accomplish in order to elevate yourself over others who can't achieve the same standard. That's legalism. Setting a standard that you can jump over but nobody else can so that you can exalt yourself if someone desires to flee evil and promote righteousness for the glory of God and the honor of His name, that is not legalism. Do you hear me? That's not legalism. That's actually wanting righteousness. Now, I admit, we can look into a huge, into others' hearts and judge them improperly, and this is wrong. This starts with The old thing, if you're pointing this way, there's what? There's three fingers pointing back at yourself. Be careful, be careful, be careful. You might not have a problem with saying four-letter words all the time, and that might not be your issue, okay? Be careful that because it's not a problem, you actually judge anybody and elevate yourself over other people because they talk like that. At the same time, I think all of us need to evaluate our hearts, Why do we pursue righteousness? Christians who desire to love life and see good days seek to do this by keeping their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking lies. Also, we must let him turn away from evil and do good. Makes sense. Don't have to develop. It makes sense. So believers who desire to love life and see good days are concerned with what we do. We turn away from evil and do good. Remember... Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Those works which God prepared beforehand. We are prepared for that. So those who love life and seek to speak correctly. And seek to do what is right. What do we do? Why are we doing it? It is the last one. Let him seek peace and pursue it. What do we pursue? What do we pursue? Oh this is so important. I'm convinced this is it right here. This one right here. This is the point. Why do we go to our jobs? Why do we do what we do? Everything we're doing should be to seek peace and pursue it. You say, what? Seek peace? Yes, beloved. This is our primary purpose, and we seek peace by what? Reconciliation through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we were at enmity with God. But God stepped down into the world so that we could have peace with Him. So what are we now? Ambassadors of peace and reconciliation. We're all about seeing other people get right with God. And we're all about seeing other people that are fighting get along. Where does that peace happen? It happens in the gospel. It happens in Christ. We were continually straying like sheep, but we've returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls because he gave us a blessing. And so, what do you pursue? Do you pursue reconciliation? Do you pursue peace with God? Do you want other people to be at peace with God? I was again asked this week, what do you think of, uh, is it okay, Pastor Mike, if you drank alcohol? Beloved, I can't even sit here and think on what would be the reason for doing it. Now let me tell you, let me explain. I don't think it's sin for me to drink alcohol. I don't think it is. But I just can't get past the third point here. How is it going to help other people? How is it going to help my family? How is it going to help my kids? Because the culture says that getting drunk is the right thing. And so people are controlled by it. And I'm, listen, if you drink it, drink a glass of wine I'm not going to look at you and go I can't believe (laughs) you would drink a glass of wine I'm not going to judge you I'm not going to judge you I'm just telling you how is that seeking reconciliation with other people how is that helping other people know God more then the argument comes well you drink coffee Let me ask you a question. Anybody in here, you tell me. You probably don't have to do it. You can do it in private. Send me a text. Is this keeping you from walking with God if Pastor Mike drinks coffee? If it does, I'll quit. You heard it here first. I will quit caffeine if it's causing you not to be at peace with God. Jesus' pursuit becomes our pursuit. Our ultimate motivation for all that we do is found in verse 12. We close with this. Because we know who God is. We know who God is. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Beloved, we know that God is a just and holy God. We know that people are at enmity with God, don't we? We know that He is a righteous judge. And one day, all who do not bow the knee to Christ Jesus will suffer judgment forever and ever and ever. Correct? Correct. So our understanding of him causes us to submit to him and live righteously seeking his help because we fail miserably, don't we? Asking for help and he empowers us and helps us and at the same time it helps us to understand that he's a righteous judge and so we're going to do everything we can to help others not face his judgment. We love people. If you love people... Beloved, if you love people, you will live different because you will know they're going to face a holy and just God. I don't want to face his face, do you? I don't want to face his judgment, do you? That's why we trusted in Christ. So our lives are now all about who? Him. All about Jesus. And what we do is for his glory not her own, right? Again, it might have come off as Pastor Mike is this guy that never sins. Look, I hope you understand I'm not saying that. I, I am fully aware that I'm more sinful than anybody in the room, or at least in my view, because the closer I study these passages and think on these passages, guess who gets butchered more? More. I'm slayed by these passages every week. But as Christians, as believers, our hope is not found in us. Our hope is found in Christ Jesus. So let's seek Him and love our life and see good days. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness towards us. Help us, Lord, now as we go to fellowship that we will edify one another, glorify your Son, and trust you. Help us, Lord. We are just still needy people in constant need of forgiveness and repentance. Lord, we just pray that you will convict us of sin and help us to turn to you quickly and exalt your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.